0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Here we go. Time for another edition of Political Rewind. We're all still isolating ourselves and doing the show by remote. I continue in my despair. Uh, bedroom in our house right outside of the city of Decatur. I've mentioned before, it also happens to be the room that we I share with our dogs sleep here at night. I have to get them out of bed early so I can come in and start working on the show. And all of our panelists today, as in every day, are coming to us from various locations where they too are sheltering in place, mostly at home. Kevin Riley, who's my partner every Thursday on the show and is, of course, the editor of the Atlanta journal Constitution is sheltering in place at his home. Kevin, are you running into any unusual problems, well, like some nine weeks now into the sheltering in place conditions? How are things going for you?
2: Uh, really going pretty well. I mean, it's been uh, a little different, um, but there's plenty of news to cover. I mean, the, the most impressive thing for me, frankly, has been the work of the AJC staff. Uh Uh, People have done such a great job under very trying circumstances, and um, I think they enjoy me being out of the way, Bill.
1: Yeah, I I I don't believe that's probably true, but uh, we know you you're all doing a good job. We're really proud of the GPB news staff in the middle of all this as well. Um, We're also joined today by Maureen Downey of the Atlanta Journal Constitution, who of course writes the Get Schooled blog that you read online at ajc.com. And Maureen, you're now your Get Schooled now appears. They've changed the days that it appears in the print edition, right? It used to be Mondays, but it is it now Tuesdays. Have I got that right?
0: Yes, it shifted to Tuesday. I think late in the, sometime in the fall, I believe.
1: Okay, and how are you holding up? You've been sheltering in place as well. Uh, any particular issues or problems, or is it going just fine for you?
0: The only issue is my husband, who's also a reporter of the agency. <laughs> <laughs> He's
1: He's sure. He sure, Bo Emerson, who's one too. of the really.
0: And he, he tends to yeah. bellow. He was interviewing yeah. um, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner Emily Green, I think, <laughs> yesterday from Atlanta. And he was laughing so loud, I actually had to go outside to, uh, to do an interview.
1: I, Bo is one of the really talented feature writers uh, in, in uh, newspapering here in the Southeast. Uh, and Maureen, my wife would empathize with you. I uh, have the loudest voice In the state of Georgia, and there are times when I'm driving her crazy, so I get what you're talking about. We're really thrilled to have back with us for the first time in quite a while, in a different role, Kyle Wingfield used to come to us pretty regularly as a columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Kyle, of course, you moved on some time ago to take the role of president and CEO of the Georgia Public Policy Foundation, which is a think tank, I think, Kyle— not unfair to say a conservative leaning think tank that deals with a great many different policy issues of importance to Georgia how have you been doing great
3: uh, glad to be back with you i see you've made all these changes in the 2 years since i've been away you know you can't come to the studio anymore <laughs> and you got to call in and all this stuff but uh, uh <laughs> yeah no we're we're a uh, we're a think tank here we work on actionable solutions to real life problems and uh the only reason we shy away a little bit from the conservative label is just to a lot of people that implies social issues, and uh, we only work on fiscal issues. So, you know, we're, we're and fiscal fiscal conservatives is a fair way to, to describe us.
1: I, I take that point, and of course, one of the reasons we wanted you today, and, and I should have said it from the very start, is that we really want to talk about education in Georgia and how it's been affected. By the coronavirus, and and George Public Policy Foundation does in fact have people who uh, are very thoughtful on the subject of how we can improve our schools. Um, and with that in mind, I'm really thrilled to invite uh, to our uh, show today, Tracy Pendley. Uh, Tracy, you're a fourth grade teacher at Burgess Peterson Academy in the city in the Atlanta Public School System. You are the 2020 Georgia Teacher of the year, and I understand that because of the pandemic, you get to keep the crown for an additional year. Is that right?
4: Yes, I will be serving another year. <laughs> really exciting.
1: Wow! Congratulations, uh, Tracy. Obviously, we're really looking forward to having you give us a real uh, a, a close look at what it's been like to work as a teacher in, under the circumstances you found yourself. But I'm also interested in the fact that you're very candidate have talked about your own background uh the fact that you uh, come out of a single family a single parent home you've said your mother was uh, an addict you changed schools with great regularity and so while a pandemic is certainly unique to all of us you know what it's like to try to fight through difficult circumstances to get an education
4: Absolutely. And, you know, when I look back at all of that, I can say with certainty that there are two reasons that I feel I've become a successful adult. The first one being I had phenomenal educators, absolutely phenomenal, who went above and beyond. And the second one is that I ended up with a lot of privilege. I had an uncle kind of swoop and aunt swoop in when I was 16 and really become that safety net for me that a lot of students just don't have.
1: Well, we're going to get into talking about how you're teaching You uh, say, Oh, I should also point out, just in February of this year, right before everything shut down, uh, uh, Bridges-Peterson became an international baccalaureate school, which is an extraordinary achievement. And for people who are familiar with the IB program, very difficult to achieve. So you all should be congratulated uh, for that, too. We don't want to forget to mention that. All right. Mm-hmm. Let's start talking about – sure, let's talk about school. Um, and I'd like to start, everybody, if I may, with uh, the latest kind of conflicting messages we've been hearing out of Washington as uh, as schools across Georgia try to figure out what they're going to do in the fall. So as you all know, Anthony Fauci, uh, who is the, the uh, head of the uh, infection uh, and virology uh, program that that the that the government is trying to adhere to as it moves forward with this thing. He appeared before a Senate committee the other day, and he was very quickly challenged by Senator Rand Paul because of Fauci's concern about the opening of schools in the fall. Let's listen to Rand Paul first.
3: And I think the one-size-fits-all that
1: we're going to have a national strategy and nobody's going to go to school is kind of ridiculous. We really ought to be doing it school district by school district, and the power needs to be dispersed because people make – Wrong predictions. And really, the history of this, when we look back, will be of wrong prediction after wrong prediction after wrong prediction, starting with uh, Ferguson in England. So I think we ought to have a, a little bit of humility in, in our uh, belief that we know what's best for the economy. And as much as I respect you, Dr. Fauci, I don't think you're the end all. I don't think you're the one person that gets to make a decision. But Fauci doesn't think he's the be all or end all either. Here's how he responded. You use the word we should
3: be humble about what we don't know. And I think that falls under the fact that we don't know everything about this virus. And we really better be very careful, particularly when it comes to children, because the more and more we learn, we're seeing things about what this virus can do that we didn't see from the studies in China or in Europe.
1: Uh, And then, having heard that exchange, President Trump weighed in on essentially expressing his displeasure displeasure with what Dr. Fauci had to say.
4: I was surprised by his answer, actually, uh, because,
1: uh, you know, uh, it's just, to me, it's not an acceptable answer, especially when it comes to schools. The only thing that would be acceptable, as I said, is professors, teachers, etc., over a certain age. I think they ought to take it easy for another few weeks, five weeks, four weeks, who knows, whatever it may be. All right, so Kevin Riley, as we listen to all of that, you can't blame uh, educators in Georgia if they are confused by the messaging they're getting out of Washington. Washington isn't necessarily going to determine how schools in Georgia open or stay shut for the time being. Nevertheless, the messaging is very confusing, Kevin.
2: Yeah, Bill, and I know we're going to get into this, and and I'm so interested in – tracy's opinion on where this will go because as you know i've gotten a little view of this during my sheltering in place because my daughter's a preschool teacher and i've gotten to see what it's like from the teacher's side and how how challenging and important the work is but you know you listen to fauci and it's amazing because it's like the whole nation is hanging on his every word he's one of the most basically most trusted person in the country right now and i well here's what i heard in his words i heard Nothing has changed about this virus since we decided to close schools. And until we know more, it's not a great idea to go gangbusters toward opening schools. I mean, that's what I heard. But Maureen, I, you know, I you've been covering this uh, every day, so I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective as well.
0: You know, I think the problem is that you can't reopen the economy really without reopening schools because we have – uh, parents right now at home with their children, and even though uh, Tracy may, may may be able to shed more light on this, I'm finding that parents have sort of given up on homeschooling right now. Kids are out playing more. I see them all around. They're on their bicycles. And I think that's allowing parents to work a little bit more. But now we're going into the summer with most camps, overnight camps, closing. Real concern about which camps will open, even with the governor's announcement this week that they can, day camps. I think parents. Parents um, are – we have a couple things happening. The workforce, uh, we want that to, to revitalize. We want folks to go back to work. People want to go back to work, and we have this major childcare issue. And for all of our uh, statements that schools are not babysitters, they are, in fact, taking care of the children while parents are working. So it is not just a question of child safety. It's a question of uh, getting people back to work. So it's a very complicated issue.
1: Maureen, uh, what is the thinking these days? First by Richard Wood, the state school superintendent, and then as we hear from uh, superintendents of school districts around the state, um, does it appear that there's going to be an effort to try to get schools open, or is there still a very cautious wait-and-see attitude?
0: You know, I think both with K-12 and higher ed in Georgia, unlike some states, California for example, At least the public statement is that we are going to be back in the fall. Now, how we are going to be back and what that looks like remains to be seen. And some of the suggestions are fairly dramatic. I mean, kids going to school every other day, kids going a half day, uh, taking classes that are now 27 and trying to break them in half so kids can have social distance. Uh, So Georgia is a go, at least publicly saying that in the fall, some sort of school will resume in this state.
1: Kyle you want to jump in yeah you know I you
3: know one one point to the uh, about the messaging I mean I think one thing that it, that should have been clear by now and it needs to be clear is that w- with all these kinds of decisions it's it's federal authorities making offering guidance and, and maybe some frameworks for thinking about these things and then states have to make the decisions um, just as it was with closing and shutting down, and it's going to be the same with schools. Um, and then the next point, and this is kind of to Dr. Fauci's point, um, you know, we, we're still learning, and so I, I think what we should expect and really even encourage uh, as it comes to reopening schools is for districts to try different approaches. We don't know what's going to work. Uh, we know there are lots of different options out there. I've seen some surveys of state school uh, education officials from around the country there's a wide range of approaches being taken here, and I would assume it'd be the same within the state. So, you know, I, I think encouraging different approaches, being very transparent about what's going on, being, having benchmarks out there for what's possible, um, and, then, and then holding districts accountable for how those work out, but letting them, you know, try different things and switch as needed.
4: You know, um, this has really been a trying experience for educators. You know, namely because many of us have children of our own. Um, in the first couple of weeks of distance learning, there was a lot of planning around, you know, making schedules, and educators and parents alike really excited about what that day would look like. But as Maureen said, we quickly found out how tough it is to work. You know, right now I've locked myself into a bedroom so that you know my naked five and eight-year-old don't run through. Um, looking ahead into the fall, it's I'm really concerned about what that could look like, um, even at a staggering approach. You know, a lot of the um, public commentary out there is about how children aren't being impacted as much as older adults. And, you know, we just don't know enough to say that. And we also have to think about, you know, the fact that 30 percent of teachers in our state are over the age of 50, Um, And then thinking about all of our children who are living with grandparents. Um, It's really concerning, and I actually just kind of had my first ugly crisis thinking about the fact that we won't be able to go to school in the fall. Um, It has definitely been a learning experience, but at the end of the day, just like parents, teachers want to be in that classroom with kids.
2: Uh, Bill, the term that I keep hearing that, you know, I think has gotten to the point where it's almost humorous is, Robust testing, it will take robust testing. You know, uh, they want to do that on college campuses and at schools and everything else. So, it, it, you know, just thinking a little bit about K 12 education, uh, where this, um, would be, you know, have the hugest impact. Uh, you know, how are you going to do that? Are you going to test every kid in school every day? Are you going to test every teacher? And staff person in school every day? Are you going to test every family member of every student every day? Because when you think about how uh, what we've learned about how this virus is transmitted, it seems like. That would be what it takes, uh, along with social distancing, along with all this facilities management and cleaning, along with all this transportation of kids. I mean, if you split a classroom in, class, uh, in half and kids, some kids come in the morning and some kids come in the afternoon, you just double the amount of bus runs that you have to do, too, which is a big expense for schools. So, uh, And then the, for the president to say, well, it doesn't affect kids that much. I mean, it, it just seems like, again, we don't really have a handle on this virus. And as much as we need kids back in school, I just don't imagine educators who've devoted their lives to, the, you know, to helping young people advance their own lives would put them at such risk and their families at such risk, not to mention their own staff at such risk. I mean, imagine making that decision.
1: Um, Okay, but I want to pick up on a point that Kyle made and that was really essentially what Rand Paul was saying uh, yesterday or day before yesterday now in the hearing with Dr. Fauci. Um, Maureen, um, the notion that there certainly are uh, parts of the state that are experiencing very low levels of the virus um, does raise the question of whether it might be possible to allow some schools – To begin to open, by the way, if um, people have got, have not muted their alerts on their phones or whatever, I'd appreciate if you'd do that. I cannot tell you the kind of angry emails I've gotten from people listening to the show saying, why aren't they muting their (laughs) alerts? So I don't know who it is, but I don't want to get any more of those messages. (laughs) Maureen, what about that notion that it might be possible to open some schools in some parts of the state?
0: you know i think that is true i mean i think there are some areas um some of the rural counties that uh that don't, don't really don 't feel like they 're uh, threatened by this as much as other counties, of course, we have seen that shift literally overnight where counties that had no cases um, you know weeks ago, like Hall County and Haversham, uh now we 're seeing cases, so that is a, a, a very fast moving target and i 'm I'm not sure we can count on that, but I do think that districts have different needs and um, a statewide policy may not work. There may be counties in Georgia that could open with regular schedules. They have small enough class sizes they can do this. And certainly the metro districts, you know, Gwinnett, for example, which has mega schools, they have a whole different set of challenges than uh, some of the South Georgia counties do. But I'm, I'm not sure states. You know, I'd be surprised if Georgia went with a district-by-district policy. I tend to think that we'll see some guidance from the state. And to go back to what Kevin said. I don't think we w- we have the um, best conditions to reopen schools, but I think there is tremendous pressure to reopen schools, and that includes from parents. You know, I'm writing about high school graduation pressure this week. There are many many parents who not only want their schools to hold uh, traditional graduations at stadiums, they want their grandparents in Pennsylvania to be able to get tickets and come. So it's very interesting to me to see this bouncing act the schools have to do. Parents want their children back at school. And I think that will hold a lot of uh, sway.
1: So that's really an important uh, point first that you made, which is, Kyle, the notion that one size doesn't fit all sounds pretty good, except we don't know where this virus is going next. And, and, you know, there was a time when uh, the governor's office was very proud of the fact that the virus had not reached a majority of Georgia counties earlier on in the pandemic. Now it's virtually everywhere across the state, although certainly it's a, 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 not as big an impact on some of the more rural counties as it is. So, Kyle, uh, Tom House and Sam bermas has put together some interesting figures about Georgia schools. Let me run it past you and then get your thoughts about how you can open, you know, maybe in some places and not others. The average number of students in a Georgia elementary school is 621 children. The average middle school, 750 students. The average high school, 1,200 students. And more than 20 Georgia high schools have enrollments above 3,000. So when you talk about the kinds of numbers involved and try to figure out a way to get those people into, those, those students, those children into schools, it is an enormous challenge.
3: Of course. Uh, it, it's absolutely an enormous challenge and and you know I, I think that's challenge is the right way to think about it right I mean challenges lead people to come up with new solutions and creative and innovative solutions uh, there's there are going to be changes that come about as, as we navigate these waters that that inform the way we do education from here on out uh, you know there's we're, we're talking a lot about I think the word we really ought to focus on is education and continuity of learning. I think every district in Georgia should anticipate some sort of disruption in the next school year, right? So how do you balance, um, you know, the the attributes of in-person learning that we know are important and the necessity at some point in the school year, if not large chunks of the school year, Uh, of having to go to some sort of remote learning. I think we all agree that, you know, lots of districts tried lots of different things this spring and there were very uneven results. So how do we, how do we smooth that out somewhat? How do we innovate and, and come up and try some new approaches that can allow us to, to perform better next year? But, you know, there's going to be change throughout the year.
4: Absolutely, you know, and as we move into the fall, you know, we've learned a lot about distance learning, and if we do continue outside of the classroom, there are definitely some things that we're going to have to look at. Um, you know, for example, it's been well reported about the lack of reliable internet access across much of rural Georgia. It's actually estimated that 1.6 million households do not have adequate access. Now, recently, 448 mobile um, Hotspots have been deployed on school buses, but there's still a lot of unknowns about what that actually looks like on the ground, how much students are able to access it, because in many of these rural areas, that still requires an adult driving students to those locations. And so, um, really, this pandemic has put a spotlight on the inequities amongst students, especially the groups that we know
0: are already more vulnerable. Uh, to to Tracy's point about um, the unevenness and and the fact that we have uh, some areas that will still be um, not served, you know, I think one issue that we're going to have to look at in Georgia if we go back on some staggered is perhaps. Uh, keeping high school students who are more able to uh, learn online let them stay home and bring back the younger children because even with wifi hotspots if you don't have a parent on hand who can help a, a six or seven year old get onto a zoom call I mean some some kids have five different applications they have to access to do their schoolwork the idea that kids can be left alone at a kitchen table and, and handle this particularly young kids I think is, is simply a farce so I think we have to recognize that we will have to change how school looks but I still think that parents want some in-person component. And so the, the model people keep talking about is blended, where kids come in part of the time, they might have uh, small group classes and be home for sort of work and worksheets. You know, I think that there there is a lot of great stuff we could put into place. The question is, do we have enough time leading up to that? Because school resumes here the second or third week in August. And I'd be curious, Tracy, is anybody doing any deep, remote uh, training of teachers to, to master online learning and online instruction? Yeah, this has actually not come
4: up yet. Everything is still very much in the air. We're waiting on boards to vote on the budget next month. Um, so no. And a lot of those budget cuts are impacting professional development across the state.
1: All right, let's do this. we got to get a break out of the way. Uh, when we come back, I want to pick up on a couple of themes. Uh, number one, Tracy raised the question of uh, the, the disparities between uh, what – rural school districts may deal with in terms of online learning and what Metro Atlanta schools can do. And then I want to talk, Tracy, at some point about your experience of moving this past semester to online learning, how that's worked for you. And we should talk about the social aspects of that, too. What are your kids missing by being stuck at home? So let's do all that And more and a little bit of a look at what's going to happen in the state university system, too, when Political Rewind continues.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: Our panel on Political Rewind today AJC editor Kevin Riley, who joins me on Thursdays for the show, Uh, Maureen Downey, the uh, author of the Get Schooled blog. For the AJC, Kyle Wingfield, now the president and CEO of the Georgia Public Policy Foundation and teacher of the year, Georgia teacher of the year, Tracy Pendley. A quick program note before we continue the conversation about education. Um, We're going to have Attorney General Chris Carr on the show tomorrow. He is going to be talking to us, of course, about the Arbery case, the tragic shooting In uh, the Brunswick area, there are certain things that uh, Carr was not going to be able to talk about, but we're going to uh, get an overview from him about how that case is developing and how he learned about it in the first place. That's really a very interesting story. Uh, So that's tomorrow on Political Rewind. One other quick note. Uh, I mentioned it already, but those of you who contacted me kind of upset that you heard all of these uh, alerts. Uh, coming over I get it you're absolutely right and we're gonna do our best from now on to make sure that me I'm part of this that I'm on silent too on all of that sort of thing. All right let's move forward uh, with the show today. Um, uh, Maureen uh, the we know that the legislature is faced with an enormous budget problem. The governor wants 3.5 billion dollars cut from the next year's fiscal budget, and he said every department, including education, will take 14% pay cuts. Um, What does that mean? Am I correct, Maureen, that that's going to have a disproportionate impact on schools in more rural areas of the states or schools without the kind of tax base that they might be able to dip into to make up for some of the funds they won't be getting? Talk to us about that, Maureen.
0: Right, because, of of course, school funding in Georgia has a, a three sources, uh, state, local, and federal, federal being on average about uh, 10%. And local districts uh, outside of metro Atlanta get actually a larger share of state dollars because they don't really have a robust property tax base. So when you compare where I live, the city of Decatur, where probably local property taxes, I think, are maybe 70 or 80% of what we're paying to send kids to school. And then if you go to a small town in Georgia, it's, it's the opposite. So if you can actually tap your own community uh, for more money uh, then you have, in fact, you're, you're better off than rural Georgia, where simply the property tax digest there doesn't really allow, allow them to do that. And you know, and I'll tell you, this is going to be 2008 all over again, where rural districts really did pay a higher price. And let me just point out one thing, Bill. At the same time that we're going to cut schools dramatically and cut all state agencies, we're telling schools to do things like consider smaller class sizes, consider staggered shifts. Mm-hmm. All of these things, the buses are very expensive because we've, you know, really moved most of the responsibility for bus cost and transportation to the districts. So it's impossible to do both. You can't dramatically cut schools and yet put in the adequate and necessary safety measures uh, to go back uh, during this pandemic.
1: Kyle, this is exactly the sort of issue that the Georgia uh, Public Policy Foundation looks at. How concerned are you about the budget cuts in the potentially disproportionate impact it may have on schools in various parts of the state?
3: Well, you know, we're talking about some very large numbers, uh, clearly. Uh, you know, one a couple points I'd like to make. One, there, there are billions of federal dollars coming into this state. Um, it, by my count, just from uh, the CARES Act, two provisions of the CARES Act and the increased Medicaid uh, match rate, we're talking about over $5 billion dollars. Uh, from three buckets of federal relief money coming into Georgia. The problem is the state can't necessarily use it in the way it needs to. It's it's really been handcuffed in how it could be used. So, you know, on on the one hand, I, I think we could have the resources we need to stave off a lot of this, but we need, we need Congress to go back and, and make it clear that states have flexibility in how they use these funds. The second point I'd make real quick is, you know, a lot of a lot of commentary after the last recession was how this was a once in a lifetime type of event, and you know there was a lot of uh, as I told James Salzer of the AJC for a story last Sunday. You know, there's a lot of kind of patching things together with duct tape until we got think, through that recession and that revenue dip. Well, we're now in our second once in a lifetime downturn and our second once in a lifetime budget crisis. You know, I think it's time to rethink how we deliver a lot of public services and education is going to have to be one of them. I don't think just as, you know, back to the uncertainty about the virus, I don't think we can believe strongly that we're going to go back to that old environment of budgets. Uh, So this is a time for really being creative and innovative and changing the way we deliver services.
2: You know, the number is a big one. Uh, you know, we've reported that the Department of Education expects to, to uh, you know, in the next fiscal year, have to cut $1.6 billion. And, you know, the the feeling on that is simple. It, it's going to be people, in other words, payroll, and it's going to end up being, uh, you know, these other things that Maureen referenced, which is uh, shorter school years and all the things that. It seems to be, you know, the the proposed solutions to having to deal with the pandemic. I mean, I, I suppose you could argue possibly that if if school work, if all schools were being done online and remotely, perhaps there are some savings. But, I mean, Tracy, I, I'll just ask you that. I mean, it, it, is it really possible to save money by doing things remotely? I mean, from a teacher's point of view, I'm assuming it's harder and more demanding And you're stretched even more thin thin by teaching remotely.
4: Yeah, it certainly is demanding. I've had a few good laughs over people thinking that teachers have a vacation right now. Um, We need, we're going to need to get on the same page in terms of protocols and plans. Um, We need to talk about the grading practices. And so it's definitely going to require some online training and just collaborating over the summer using what we've learned over the last couple of months. Um, you know, I think that kids are going to need more than 30 minutes a few times a week with one teacher. Um, you know, in mid-March, we kind of cut our losses and we're thankful that we made it through so much of the year. But now that the realization is setting in that this continue, we're really going to have to come to the table and look at what we are teaching, how we're asking students to do it, and importantly, how we're maintaining strong relationships with our families. Um, One thing that is, you know, the crux of a classroom are those social relationships between the student and teacher, but also amongst the students themselves. You know, learning is social. We construct knowledge together. And so when we've taken students out of the classroom, you know, when we're on Zoom meetings, we're muting them because of all the noise in the background. Some of our students are in the process of babysitting their siblings at the same time. Um, It's definitely going to require a different approach.
1: Um, we should not leave the subject of the state budget cuts without mentioning, Maureen, that um, whatever broadband initiative for rural Georgia legislators had been hoping to put together, which they've tried to do for a couple of sessions now, is almost certainly out the window for the time being. Um, and and we know, based on numbers we've looked at, that some 25% of the state does not have access to broadband. So. If if we don't start in-classroom teaching in the fall, uh, even with the mobile hotspots that Tracy mentioned before, uh, it is going to be very difficult for some households to get what they need out of some sort of remote learning by Internet.
0: Yeah, that, that is absolutely true, which is why I think we're going to have to accept that. In some areas, there will have to be an in-person component, whether it's a half-day school. Uh, we have to, we can't have these children sitting out school for six more months or, or three more months. You know, I think that we have to sort of look at who really is the priority. I mean, where is the need greatest, and um, what can we do to meet that need? And, and that includes higher ed as well. I mean, we're talking about uh, kids. Um, we had many college students in Georgia who actually were in the parking lots in rural Georgia of Chick-fil-A's and McDonald's past midnight doing their homework. And I think that um, there's an assumption that I think is really, um, uh, really arrogant that the, we're in Atlanta and we think, well, there's, there's Internet everywhere. It is not a problem. But I talked to uh, University of Georgia kids who drove 30 miles to a fast food parking lot, and that's where they did their assignments. And we simply, we, we can't run an education system with kids driving 30 miles to Chick-fil-A. For, for Wi Fi. Kevin,
1: I, yeah, Kevin, I don't doubt that educators like Tracy uh, are going to remain committed to making sure they do their best for their students um, under incredibly difficult circumstances. And I don't want to get into a hyperbolic kind of uh, uh, conversation. I don't want to be hyperbolic in my rhetoric. But there's an extent to which, Kevin, I worry we're losing a generation of students who are coming through the system, especially the middle school kids, the elementary school kids, the ones that Tracy's familiar with, who are simply not getting the kind of education and the socializing that the schools provide that Tracy talked about during this pandemic and that we're going to pay for it. It's going to haunt us the way the recession will for years and years to come. Am, am I being over the top, do you think, Kevin?
2: Well, Bill, who knows how it will come out. I mean, uh, there are those of us who I think are more optimistic and think uh, this shakeup could could get our priorities a little straighter over time about, um, you know, as Kyle points out, educating versus schools and family engagement, as Tracy has mentioned, uh, and its importance in education, you know, as well. Um, To me, though, it's just kind of crazy. We were having all kinds of discussion about kids having too much screen time. And now with, with the pandemic, it's like we're demanding that they have even more screen time to make it all work. It's really a, a upside-down
1: world. Tracy, assuage my fears. I may be way over the top on my concerns. You're the teacher.
4: You know, I'm I'm concerned too, Bill. I really, really am. It keeps me up at night, actually. You know, the students who are logging in, many of them are the ones that have parents at home who are able to support them, who are able to offer help. But what we're finding on the ground in actual practice is that the kids who most need to be in front of instruction, who most need to be logging in, simply aren't. Um, That has led many of us to make lots of phone calls. I'm texting students. I'm making home visits. And even during some of my home visits, I'm unable to contact the child because of lack of updated phone numbers or addresses. Um, You know, here in Atlanta, gentrification is really, really impacting parts of our city. And so I'm finding that when I, where a student was living at the beginning of the year, it's no longer the same. Um, And so lost contact with our students and with our families is certainly a concern and something that is disproportionately impacting the kids who need that time most.
3: You know, I, I absolutely agree, Bill, that this is a critical moment um, that that you have that you do have a generation of kids who, you know, they've, they've lost the last quarter. Uh, and, I, and I say lost. I don't want to I don't want to gloss over the real efforts tons of teachers have, have gone to to try to to try to keep things going. But I think we all recognize that the, the arrangement, the setup was was not optimal. Right. Um, so so they've they've lost a quarter of this school year um we don't know how early they're going to get into the next school year uh there's there's all this all this talk sort of seems to hover around well when will there be a vaccine we could be years away from a vaccine you know there's a kind of an assumption out there that like well sometime next year we'll have a vaccine there are many diseases we've been trying to vaccinate against for for decades and have not been able to so i want to go back to what i said earlier this is a challenge but challenges offer the opportunity to try things differently and really rethink the way we do things and i would challenge our school leaders um, to say how can we make changes now that will both accommodate the present crisis uh, allow for remediation of students who are losing valuable learning time now and make education better in the future. You know, going to mastery of content rather than, you know, well, we've spent X number of time on a, on a subject and now it's time for the test and you either pass or you fail and then we're going to move on. You know, there, there are lots of different ways being tried out there uh, and, and I think it's time to try some of those here.
1: All right, I got to get to another break. Um, and when we come back, I want to shift just a little bit. To looking at what the situation looks like for the fall for uh, the university system of Georgia. Uh, We'll do that and more when we come back on Political Rewind. Tracy Pendley, uh, my minder, Tom Faust. said to me during the break that he doesn't think I quite asked you the question about how your students were holding up, which is something I said when we went into our last break I would do. So if you wouldn't mind, just give us a quick sense of are they thriving, surviving, making do? How would you describe what it's like for, for those kids? And we want to remind people that you're a fourth-grade teacher, right?
4: Yeah, and I actually I service students right now in small groups, um, second through fifth-grade additionally, and what I'm finding right now is that a lot of them are just making you. You know, they're, they want to go back to school. Um, some of my more self-directed learners are turning in assignments consistently. Um, you know, and others, it's hard. And so I've been telling, you know, teachers and the teachers that I work with that we have to leave with, lead with compassion right now um, and really tend to mm-hmm. our students' social needs. I have found that even when I'm doing um, a reading lesson, We were reading 100 Dresses just yesterday, and after 10 minutes of reading, it turned into Mm. friendship troubles. And, you know, it just reminded me that at the forefront of what kids continue to need right now is social-emotional learning. And we're going to have to really look at how we help counsel kids when we come back in the fall.
2: Tracy, you know, something I wanted to say, uh, you know, just to acknowledge uh, the efforts of teachers. I mentioned at the top of the show, I've been one of the great gifts of this pandemic is being sheltered in place with a preschool teacher, my daughter. And, uh, you know, getting a chance to see her work and recognize uh, what teachers really do and how much it means. I mean, again, she's dealing with preschoolers. Um, We share the same office space. And the only time I get to reserve it first is for this show and she puts her schedule and I get the heck out of her (laughs) way, uh, because, um, uh, of, 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 you know, being able to see what she's doing. And then the only small contribution I've been able to make is, is they, uh, offer, uh, you know, read books to kids. It's part of the activity of preschool. So she insisted that she, uh, that I read a book. And so we made a video of me reading one of her, Mm -hmm. her favorite books from her, her childhood. But, um, for everyone, you know, who's listening to this show, wait, wait, what um, was
1: that book? What was the book?
2: It was called The Tiny Town. It's it's a little obscure. Um, I wanted right. to read green, green Eggs and Ham, but I couldn't find a copy of it. Uh, but <laughs> but but for everybody, you know, um, uh, if you get a chance to see a teacher in action because of this, whether it's your child's teacher or someone you know, or you can even just kind of peek in on a Zoom call, you'll be reminded of just. Um, the incredible work teacher to do, and how often we overlook it.
4: I could not Absolutely. agree with you more, Kevin. Uh, I've never been prouder to be a teacher in Georgia and to represent our educators and students. There is some real innovation happening across the state.
1: All right, let's uh, – uh, uh, Tom Faust says to me in a chat uh, uh, here, he just sent me, he said, we should have Kevin Reilly uh, read Green Eggs and Ham on the show sometime. I'd rather keep our numbers up. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. <laughs> Faust, for that suggestion. Maureen, with a couple minutes left, I said we really do need to look a little bit at the university system here. Uh, we're told St- uh, that uh, Steve Wrigley's plan, uh, the chancellor's plan, is to open – the universities in the fall, just as the biggest university system in the country, California State University System, has announced they're not going to go forward with uh, in-person classrooms. Do you think we're really going to open our colleges and universities this fall?
0: You know, I have a, I, I have twins. So I've got one at UGA and one at Georgia Tech, and I'm on those Facebook parent sites. And this is the biggest question where people uh, – there, there are people who are actually – you know, planning for the, asking where, you know, where to buy matching comforters for their dorm rooms because they're so confident the schools are going to open, and there are parents who are saying there's simply no way these schools in Georgia can open. At the Regents' meeting this week, um, uh, Dr. Wrigley did, in fact, say that the plan is to open the colleges, provided the health conditions allow, and that is, you know, a gigantic if. But uh, at this point, we they are planning to open, and um, I think that, uh, to get, you know, back to Kevin's earlier point about testing, they were talking about that they may, they may have campus testing, they will have the Department of Public Health, the State Department do contact tracing. So uh, I do think that's where we're headed, but so much will depend on conditions in Georgia come August uh, and whether or not the numbers, the, the rates have decreased, uh, whether or not faculty will show up because you know a, a third, I believe, of the K-12 faculty is considered in the risk categories. I would even think it might be higher because there's a lot of professors who are 50 and older and, and a lot of professors who are 60 and older. So I think there's a lot of unknowns. But at this point, Georgia is saying to parents, we will open provided. And that's what we're not clear on, what will have to be in place and what will be in place.
1: Yeah, we're going to have to watch it unfold. Kyle, one of the really uh, sad uh, circumstances about all this, though, uh, is uh, we're already reading uh, about how difficult it's going to be for – Seniors coming out of colleges this, this spring and certainly going forward in the recession to f- even begin to find jobs where they can go. So uh, even with colleges, even with universities open, the future for an awful lot of students is very, very uh, troubling.
3: Yeah, it's not unlike, you know, what we saw a generation of kids coming out of the last recession uh, and, it, and it stunted their incomes and their abilities to start, uh, you know, uh, buying houses. Their willingness to start families. You know, there was a huge effect that we saw in the last from the last recession, and, and we're going to see something similar, I'm afraid, this time. Uh, especially if this, you know, we've we've kind of stopped talking about how this is going to be a V-shaped recovery, and uh, the the new word I saw in the Wall Street Journal this week was this, a swoosh recovery. Uh, which is, uh, mm-hmm. sounds cool if you're a Nike fan, but it's really more of a delayed and lengthy uh, return back to where we were. So, um, absolutely, it's going to be tough. Uh, you know, one point about the, the resumption of in-person in person classes in higher education, but also I think this applies to K 12 to some extent, is that we haven't mentioned is our parent, let's say the school, the university, whatever it is, um, says we're going to go back to in person classes. Are parents going to be comfortable sending their kids back? Are they going to want to opt out somehow? There's, you know, I'm seeing a growing amount of private polling out there that suggests double-digit percentages of parents in both public and private schools, and this is K-12, um, are considering homeschooling next year because they'd rather just have that predictability and that control over what's going on. Uh, you know, they're also considering switching. From public to public, from public to private, private to public. I mean, there, there's a lot of parental uh, input that you're going to see here, and I think that applies to higher ed. Um, you know, the, the, you're not limited if you've got uh, entire systems like in California um, going virtual. You're not, you don't have to be in California maybe to get enrolled and, and attend their classes.
1: Um, So while you say that, Kyle, let me give your website a a, a plug. Uh, The Georgia Public Policy Foundation website has a a number of articles about education, and you, in fact, have been for quite a while, and you can find it on the site. Proponents of school choice, which um, you think maybe will help uh, resolve some of the big fiscal issues we have, but you also have – a a, a paper up online right now that talks about sort of hybrid between home learning and school learning. And although we don't have time to talk about it, people can go to your website and read all they want about it. Okay. Fair enough. Absolutely. That's georgiapolicy.org. And we'd, we'd love to have you read uh, those materials. Tracy, as we run out of time, um, do you believe that what we're going through right now is strengthening the resolve the creative thinking of the teachers that you work with, or is it so, so I use myself as an example. Um, The coronavirus is the most important story that I will ever cover as a journalist. I have no doubt about that. And in fact, it is, and Kevin Riley and I talk about this, um, in fact, it has energized me to really want to cover important news in an even more thorough and kind of engaging way. Is that our teacher? I mean, you can't generalize, but how are teachers responding? Are we going to lose teachers because of this?
4: You know what? I really don't think so. I think that teachers are digging in even deeper. You know, we love a challenge, and we didn't get into it for any of the politics. We got into it for kids. Um, And so I really think that it is strengthening um, educators' pedagogy. You know, as we move into the fall, I think that lessons can change a lot. For example, Let's look more at students' ability to communicate and disagree respectfully. Let's help students realize their passions. Let's assign um, assignments that have them solve real world problems.
1: All Um, right, I appreciate that. Maureen Down. Sure. Go ahead, finish it up.
4: Yeah, for all of the educators listening, I just want to emphasize that the way that districts are handling budget cuts across the state is so varied. No, and I just don't want anyone to worry. A last resort is certainly furlough. And so just please continue to look to your districts for information there.
1: Uh, before we finish, I don't have any time to talk about uh, Marine Downey. You filed a really fascinating story. Today about the Ahmaud Arbery uh, case in which nine school uh, boards across the state are urging as a result of this that they step up teaching about racism and race relations. And for people who need to read that, I suggest they go to AJC.com and find that column. Thank you, Maureen, Tracy, uh, Kyle, and Kevin, of course, loved having you. Tomorrow, Chris Carr, the Attorney General, will be with us. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, everybody, and please stay healthy. Bye-bye.